Hello and welcome to this edition of Biting Talk with Life Kitchens, presented by me, William Sitwell, Telegraph restaurant critic and food writer. Biting Talk comes to you in association with Life Kitchens, creating kitchens to be lived in that are planned around your life and the way you live it. And by the way, if you put down a deposit on a new kitchen with them before December the 18th, you'll find a very large Fortnum and Mason hamper blocking your front door before you can say, will that walnut veneer we've chosen match our old fridge freezer? On this episode, we chat to Grace Dent, Guardian restaurant critic, author of some 11 novels. She has a seriously wonderful memoir out called Hungry. And with her, I'll be tracing her story from 21 Harold Street, Carlisle, to the Groucho Club in Soho, and examining her musing that the past is a foreign country. They eat chips differently there. Then we hop to Notting Hill to meet the owner of London restaurant Seven Saints, James Gummer. I wonder if there could possibly be a worse time to be a young, independent restaurateur, but I'm hoping James will slap me in the face with positive abandon. Next up is Steve Drake, this Michelin-starred chef from Surrey has a forensic approach to creating dishes, and I'm thinking it must drive him nuts if some guests aren't interested in the provenance of his broccoli couscous on a bed of Bosworth, Ash and Douglas fur, and they just want to have a good time. After that, we'll meet Jack Charlton from Cognac Purveyor Remy Marta. The man's on a mission to dispel that drink's reputation as an after-dinner sip for old buffers. Cognac and cheese straws, anyone? Finally, we alight at the House of Heydari, where this week the biting talk mixologist Farhad Heydari is covering himself in leaves. Autumn leaves. Stay tuned. Also on this week's biting talk, we are giving away a very large amount of Belgian Guillain chocolate. Stay tuned for details of that competition. But first, we welcome to the show London restaurateur James Gunner. Well, it stirs wonderful memories even thinking about the words All Saints Road because I've spent many of my formative years in that part of London and it was a street that I hung out on um, night after night in all sorts of establishments, some of which are still open, some of which are long gone. But there's a relatively new place, a new All Saints Road gaff on the block. It's called Seven Saints and the man behind it joins me now on Biting Talk, James Gummer. Welcome to the show. Hi, William. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So, All Saints Road. I mean, it's had an extraordinary history. I think at one point, certainly in the 70s, early 80s, I think uh, you should, you know, people were worried about going there unless they were sort of armed. Then it kind of got rather gentrified, I suppose, when that part of Notting Hill uh, got a little bit posher. Um, I remember these fantastic restaurants like um, Uli opening and then the All Saints Diner and so on. What led you to that street? Don't tell me. You probably live on it. I do live nearby, yeah, so that definitely played a part. Um, I love, I do love All Saints Road, as you say. Um, I think it's changed a lot over the years, and at the moment it's just got, it's still such a great kind of neighbourhood vibe, everyone knows each other, and it's just been um, such a pleasure working there. But I chose sort of that part of um, of North Ken uh, because I, I worked out in New York for a bit, uh, and I felt like in London... I think we've got some of the best restaurants in the world at the really, really top level. Um, but where I think we're kind of, well, we're leagues behind uh, places like New York and all over Europe are those little neighborhood restaurants where, you know, they might not have huge 
uh, press and they might not be on the, you know, in the, in the weekend papers, but they, they've got really great hospitality, good food. It's not a chain. And that's what I wanted to try and do. And in that area of Notting Hill, um, I think that was quite lacking a couple of years ago. I was interested. You started, you called it North Ken and then you corrected yourself and called it Notting Hill. The, the estate agents, I was worried they were going to be sweating. Yeah, I know. It kind of falls into that gap there, I think. <laughs> so have you been stalking this, um, uh, this venue, for this location for some time? I had. And actually, um, the, the little corner space that we're on, uh, I didn't even know it was, it was up, for, up for sale. It had been run. It was called the Ripe Tomato and it had been there for 20 years, uh, run by a really lovely family. And I had been looking for a space for so, so long and kept getting kind of pipped while, you know, in the final rounds when pitching, uh, I think for people with more experience. And so I kind of took matters into my own hands and was walking around there and just loved the feeling of, as you say, All Saints Road, but also the little corner space that they had. And it was so lucky. I went in um, and spoke to the guy who was representing me and spoke to the guys um, who owned the space and they were keen to sell. And so... It was all pretty, pretty good fortune. That it is a magic, uh, a magic street. That, and um, as I say, I don't know. Almost moves me thinking about it. I miss it so much. So, let's talk about this. You know, the difficulties these days. So, I mean, you open this restaurant. Actually, you've been going for for a couple of years now. Um, this has been a nightmare year. If I was a young wannabe independent restaurateur, if I had that goal of opening a restaurant. Um, and I'm particularly interested that you're not a chef, you know, you're front of house. Um, you know, what would your advice be to uh, someone who, you know, is hoping to achieve what you have, which was open a, his own restaurant before you were in your 30s? Yeah, it has. Obviously, it's been such a difficult year. Um, and but I think uh, amongst all the doom and gloom, there has also been some sort of ray of light in that I think a lot of people, I know I felt this, during lockdown, which kept going on for longer and longer and longer, my big worry was, were people going to have changed their habits? And, you know, was it going to go on long enough that people were going to sort of lose that desire to go out for out for dinner and out to restaurants? And how would it change the, the restaurant scene? And I have to say, it's been kind of heartwarming to see the support that we've had from locals and everyone. Literally, when we announced on July 4th, we were going to be reopening immediately the phones rang and all the locals wanted to come back in. And then in September and October, when we were kind of fully back at it, obviously we've had fewer tables and we couldn't really use the private room as much, particularly after the rule of six came in. But the demand has still been there. And I think for, for neighbourhood restaurants, there's still such a demand for people who want to go out for dinner and who missed it so much. And if anything, I think it's kind of strengthened that relationship between the customer and, and the restaurant. And doing what you're doing now, was this a long held dream? Because, you know, you, you studied at Trinity in Dublin. Um, then you seemed as if you were going to go into the advertising industry. Um, you've ended up in the restaurant business. Um, was your heart pulling you somewhere where your head didn't want to? Or is this something that you've always harbored a dream of doing? No, absolutely. I think that's a good way of putting it. Heart pulled me somewhere my head didn't want to. I think when I um, when I left uni, it's such a difficult time, and everyone was, you know, you're trying to work out what you want to do. And I don't think opening a restaurant at that time really felt like a viable option. You know, everyone else was going into something that seemed a bit more structured, and so I went into advertising. And I, the the firm I was working for 
was doing the PR for a, uh, for, actually for Padella, uh, for their launch. And I was just so jealous of these two guys doing what I wanted to be doing. And, you know, not, not a dissimilar age, a few years older than me. Um, and I think when any job, you've got those late Tuesday nights when it's, you know, 9, 10 p.m. and you're still at the office and that's fine if it's what you want to be doing. But if you've got this thing in the back of your mind going, I don't think this is it, then it's very hard to hard to silence it. So I quit and, yeah, started getting some experience in, in the world of restaurants. And, of course, if you're working late and it's 10 o'clock, that's fine because, of course, you're exactly. in a restaurant. Exactly, exactly. You, you get quite used to that. Now, be honest with me, you're a 28-cover restaurant. You've had your numbers savagely cut. Economically, are you stable or are you worried? It's always worrying, obviously. And I think the government did a really good job at the beginning of helping us out. And I think that the furlough scheme was obviously great. And the VAT cut and, and delay was great and really helped. But you can't, you can't go on with all these you know, intermittent lockdowns and all the rules. It's just, it doesn't work, particularly the 10 p.m. curfew. That's been, um, been almost the toughest for us. Uh, you know, so good news of a, you know, hopefully potential vaccine coming up that might make a difference, but we definitely, or will obviously make a huge difference, but we definitely couldn't keep going in and out of lockdowns forever. Yeah. And I have to say, if I was you, I would be, and given the fact you're next door to the restaurant, this is dangerous because I'd be plundering your wine list because <laughs> the fact that you've got one of my favorite, a Sirtico from Santorini. I mean, oh. if it was me living two doors away, there'd be none of that left in time, it is, in time for it the is reopening. so good, that one, isn't it? It it's, is incredible. It's very nice to see it. Um, James, it's great to chat with you. Um, your menu does look wonderful. I can't wait to get down there in due course. And um, terrific colour scheme too. Lovely shade of green. So, Thanks very much. So uh, it's great to speak with you. Thanks for joining me on Biting Talk and uh, best of luck with the reopening in a few weeks. Thanks for having me. Now, say the word cognac, and to many people, they picture the old guy sitting in a stuffy chair in some club, a stuffy room, filled with tobacco smoke, sipping on a, a huge bulb of cognac that's about to sort of knock his head off. But this is not, this is not, says my next guest, Jack Charlton, actually, the way that cognac is these days. Jack is from Remy Martin, and uh, we're going to talk about cognac for the modern sipper, and what cognac can can go with, particularly as we in the run up to Christmas. But Jack, welcome to Biting Talk. Thank you so much for having me on, William. How's it going? I'm I'm extremely well. Now, the first thing I when we we spoke a few months ago about uh, about cognac, and the first thing that struck me was that you said that actually you shouldn't sip it anyway from one of those bulbous glasses. That actually the best thing is to, to have a much narrower glass. Now. That must, that's going to shatter the illusions of everyone who's inherited a big bulb of a glass or has bought one. Um, what's going on? What's going on, Jack? Absolutely. I, th I, th I think one of the um, allures of having one of those kind of giant fishbowl glasses is mainly for aesthetics, you know, to look, <laughs> to look cool and to show off in front of your friends. But you're actually not um, revealing the full, uh, the full picture of the cognac. You know, it's, there's a lot of really complex things that are going on uh, with your glasses and especially with the kind of older end of the spectrum. 
whereas you kind of want them to be able to develop in the bowl a little bit, but you also want them to come out. And one of the kind of problems that you have with those big fish bowls is they trap in all of the alcohol and they trap in all of these aromas. So then you go to have a, like, to go what to waft it in and have a little smell and you all you get is this hit of alcohol. So it's, uh, I would always recommend nice wine glasses or if you do what the purists do in cognac is small little tasting glasses or tulips but i think it's uh, it's down to preference as well but yeah stay stay away from the 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 massive one the comedy ones what are we going to do with those comedy bulbs i mean honestly this is desperate news for people who you know who've, who've got these glasses they've got them at the back of the cupboard and they're thinking ah oh, christmas is coming or well, november the party season is here um if i can't party i'll sip some cognac at home well, I mean, what are we going to? A couple of couple of goldfish, a couple of goldfish, goldfish would be good. Yes. I think. Just to... yes, or maybe some <laughs> sand and then a, a candle or something. But it's interesting you say that because it's about getting the hit of the alcohol, which of course cognac is strong. Um, but you actually want to get the, you know, all the the, the flavors and the story and everything that goes into that into that drink. Just be, just before we talk about cognac and remy in a bit more detail in terms of the ways that we can serve it and so on just remind us for those of us like me totally ignorant how is cognac made how is remy martin made so it's actually quite an interesting it's a very very interesting um category and i think it's one that's you know it's one of the the first kind of super premium spirits but it also suffers from this kind of very intimidating aura about it and I, i'm speaking from personal experience you know it would always be something that would be like on your dad's shelf that you were never allowed to touch or and it had this kind of it was f- almost forbidden um the it's not that intimidating it's actually pretty simple when we break it down um and a lot of people are so assume that you know because it's a brown liquid they you know it's akin to like a whiskey or like a rum or something but it's actually a lot more of a noble spirit than that um we actually start life as the humble grape uh, which a lot of people still don't understand as well that they can't put the two and two together but we start as very very high quality aromatic grapes that are grown in the the southwestern um sun the southwestern french sun um they're into wine they are lovingly distilled twice to ensure that we keep all of the natural kind of the beautiful aromatic uh, compounds in there uh, and then it's aged in very high quality french oak then blended together um, and then age for a little bit longer so it's it's a lot of for, for before it gets into your into your glass the the journey that cognac has taken is um it's quite an arduous one it's quite it's quite a romantic story as well about all the you know all of the wonderful cognac houses and how they came to be as well especially especially Remy Martin yeah well the easy thing for us of course is that uh, we just sip it and enjoy it um and all that all that history is distilled into that glass so listen for the novice um sipper who's a bit worried about cognac but actually you know is interested in in having a go what is the what's a good entry point for them how should they sip it when should they sip it is this an after dinner drink can we have it with a for with me, a canopy for, for me the yeah for, i think for me there's kind of like two two schools to think about whether you want to do it in the educational route which would be the you know try it neat enjoy it kind of break down the the different flavors and aromas and really take your time with it 
But for people that are quite kind of new to the category, we find that people like to do a bit more kind of um, putting it into cocktails or even like long drinks with some nice uh, things like ginger ale or even just a couple of ice cubes. And we find that when cognac is paired with things either with, you know, uh, little canapes or cheeses or, you know, artisanal meats um, and the like, it really helps to kind of bridge that gap because it is, it, I'm not going to lie, it is a 40% spirit. It can be quite an um, can be quite intense if you're not re- if you're not kind of schooled on on uh, dark spirits. So I think anything that can kind of like soften the edges a little bit, even a, even a drop of water. Um, some people swear by it because they believe it really opens up the bouquet of the cognac. But I think for me, probably the the way to you know break into the category would be with either long drinks or cocktails. And I, a lot of people don't realize as well that. Most classic cocktails were actually designed initially with cognac in mind, and then it became too expensive to use, and they kind of think, "Oh, I don't want to waste that in a cocktail." Um, so then they had to shift across. So, for example, things like the old fashioned, or even the French seventy-five. Some 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 people may say that the original recipes were actually done with uh, with cognac in mind um, because of it being such a flavoursome spirit. So I would always. I would always go to your uh, talk to your local barkeep and see what lovely uh, lovely cognac cocktails they can whip up for you because it doesn't need to be super complicated. It can be as simple as a, a like a highball or even um, something like a sidecar, which is a wonderful classic cocktail, um, which is three ingredients: just lemon juice, Cointreau, and um, and Remy Martin cognac. It's absolutely delicious if you get the balance right. Yeah. So let me just ask you: um, it's not cheap to buy a bottle of Remy Martin. Um, once opened, will it last for ages, or have you got to consume it? Well, that depends. That that depends if you have thirsty people in the house. Um, but I think, for in terms of how, uh, what we would recommend, you know, keep it out of sunlight. I think light is the the thing that's going to affect the spirit uh, the most. Uh, if it's in direct sunlight, it can can kind of taint the the flavor a little bit. Um, we recommend a year, two years if it's open, but if it's kept, if it's kept correctly, kept away from damp, um, I think it's, I think it will be fine. Obviously I would love to say drink it straight away, but, um, I think, you know, there's, there's an occasion, there's an occasion where having a nice, having a nice dram of cognac is, um, especially coming into these colder months and into, into Christmas. I think we all need a bit of a, uh, raise our spirits a little bit with everything that's going on. Um, so if it is sitting on the shelf, I think there's no time like the present to to bring it, get it down, and get some get some nice cheeses and some meats, and turn turn an evening into a celebration because I think we need it, we deserve it. Well, Jack, you've sold me on this. Listen, thank you so much. We've <laughs> run out of time, but thank you very much indeed. Uh, Remy Martin available from wherever Remy Martin is available, and that's quite wide, I would imagine. William, absolute pleasure. Have a lovely evening. Well, if you're a habituary of Surrey, you will know the name Steve Drake. Uh, Sorrel is his more recent uh, achievement, and he got a, a Michelin star from it uh, not too long ago. But I'm very delighted to welcome the Sorrel chef patron, Steve Drake, to Biting Talk. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, William. How are you? Yeah, very nice. Uh, very nice to talk to you. So um, I have to obviously ask the obvious because we're in lockdown at the moment. Um, are you doing a, a fancy takeaway? I imagine that could be quite uh, tricky, given the quite extraordinary food that you're doing at your restaurant. Um, I've thought a lot about doing takeaways, but I'm kind of holding off on it, to be honest. I mean, if we if we don't reopen for December, which I'm 
fingers crossed, hope, hoping we do. Um, I might do something for Christmas, but I'm trying not to. But I am using this time very, very well, you know, looking at new dishes, new ingredients, new recipes. It's actually quite a nice creative time, actually. But you must have had that at the beginning of the year. So you must be fed up with this with these pauses and this this creative time. I mean, you chefs, you know, you love to be at the stove. You want to be meeting your punters. This well, must be difficult. No, I see the, the first lockdown, there was a lot of stress involved because it was unknown. We didn't know how to deal with it. We had homeschooling to deal with, which was a nightmare. And um, we had lots of financial pressures and nobody knew what was going on. Where now we've had a chance to get used to the... Um, the fact of how to handle lockdown, because, you know, in lockdown uh, one, we were, you know, you know, financially, we were really worried. We were concerned about could we reopen, blah, blah, blah. So so that was a quite a stressful time where, where now it's actually we've had a crazy, crazy three or four months since we reopened on the 4th of July. And it's been absolutely crazy. Every day has been Christmas like it's been mad. Um, so it's actually now, you know, it's it's a nice time to stop if we have to stop just to refresh and to relook at things. You know, so I'm trying to look at the positives here, you see. <laughs> try, try <laughs> this, this could yes, this could be a da- this could be a dangerous uh, precedent for chefs because, you know, you guys, I mean, you don't take afternoons off. Young chefs are in there in the kitchen preparing dishes um, to try and Im- impress and try and work their way up the uh up the helter skelter of the hierarchy of, of the restaurant business, and if you get used to having these pauses, I mean, it's going to be, you know, it's it's going to be very disruptive. It's true because you know, you know, we we obviously work our work our team members hard, and uh, you know, we don't want them to we don't want them to see the good life too much. You know, you know, we're trying to keep keep them penned in. Now. You're not going to do takeaway. I can I can see if you were trying to replicate your menu, I think it would be very difficult. I mean, you have the most extraordinary combinations. Your food is, uh, you know, there's a mastery of artistry on the plate, and the idea of popping that in a van or a or a or a moped, um, I can see that actually this is food that needs to be tasted in a restaurant. So perhaps that's very sensible. Let's look at some of the the dishes that uh, that you're known for. You do these extraordinary combinations of beetroot and Douglas fir and Bosworth ash. You pair green coffee with venison and orange pith and bone marrow. I'm going to ask you about a dish called green, green, green. But tell me, first of all, when you're assembling dishes, how does it work? Do you think ingredient? Do you draw pictures on a plate like the great Marco Pia White, who I know you worked for for some time, did? Where does the inspiration come for sorrel, for the dishes on sorrel that we'll see these days? Well, it's, I have to say, like, I, I used to draw pictures of food and and now I, I've kind of stopped doing that. Um, for me, it's purely based on flavour. Uh, well, obviously, seasonality is the main leader. Uh, obviously, things have to be in season, but it's purely based on flavour and flavour combinations and balance of flavour. So rather than drawing pictures of food, I mean, drawing the pictures is like the second or third stage. The first stage is, you know, I take a piece of paper and I maybe choose two or three ingredients which I want to work with. And then I I do these kind of like Zen kind of drawings, if you like, where in the middle, it's all about the flavours and the combination of flavours. And then on the outside of the drawing, it's what we're going to do with those flavours to be able to deliver the flavour, if that makes sense. So 
Um, and, and then the next stage um, is then we can work out how we want to present it. I always think it's a bit like a car, like you, you know, like I think you can't, I don't believe you could de design a car on purely by drawing how you want it to look. I feel that you would have to design a car on how you want it to drive, how you want it to feel, how you want it to perform. And then after that, you would design you know the, the the look of it and the, and and the shape of it, if you like, because you wouldn't know the engine size, for example, or whether you know there's lots of it. And in a way, it's the way I feel about food is that it has to come from within. It has to be you know the most important thing is flavour, and the only thing I think that you remember from restaurant food is what something tastes like. I mean, you might think in the moment that looks pretty, it looks amazing, uh, you know, it looks in appetising, but. I think ultimately you always remember flavour and taste. When you put something in your mouth, it takes you back to a place, you know, long ago or puts you back in, uh, takes you back to a memory from years ago. And, and that's the way I look at it. Now, of all the people that you've worked for, because you've been in the kitchens of people like Nicola Dennis and Mark and Pierre White and the Rue Brothers and so on, you, had, you spent a, a bit of time with Tom Aitkins and Will Drabble. Is there a particular chef amongst those from whom you learned most, you know, more of your culinary technique or skills or picked up tips than any others? Is there one that you, if you lie back at night and thinking there was that moment in that kitchen or there was that particular chef who really put an idea in my mind? Well, I think I learned different things from all of those great chefs. And I was very, very lucky. I mean, in the in the 90s, when I was, I started, at the, I started at the Ritz Hotel in 1990, you know, and and, you know, there weren't, I mean, I mean, now uh, chefs, are, I think young chefs are so lucky. There are so many different restaurants around, so many incredibly creative chefs where when I was sort of in the industry in the 90s, I, I think there were less of them, you know, and, and, and mostly it was based on sort of French cuisine as well. Um, but I certainly like Nico, the Dennis, Shay Nico, definitely the most organized kitchen I've ever worked in, the cleanest kitchens I've worked in, super organized, very, very super structured, really, really well. Um, Marco's was the most consistent kitchen I've ever seen in my life. It was like, it was incredibly consistent. There wouldn't be anything out of place, no matter what would happen. With Tom Aitkins, I think I learned to work by myself because it was a small team. You had lots to do in a short sort of space of time. Um, it was a very busy restaurant. Tom's food at that point was, I would say, there was quite a lot going on on the plate at that point. So the dishes were very complex and lots going on. And I kind of learned to get a lot done in a very short amount of time. So, and equally, when we opened Aubergine after Gordon walked out, I think it was 97, I think this was, um, when I opened up with William Drabble, um, you know, we only had, there was only a handful of chefs and we had a lot to do with a lot of pressure. So that kind of gave me um, qu quite a lot of, of skills. But, but then when I went to open Drake's on the Pond in leafy Abinjahammer <laughs> in the Surrey Hills, I was on my own in the kitchen. Um, and I'd learned, I guess, from Tom Aitkins probably the most about how to create lovely food, you know, with in a short amount of time with lots to do, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Steve, we'll have to end it there. It's great having you on the show. Um, best of luck in a couple of weeks when you when you reopen and I hope you have a storming Christmas there at Sorrel. But uh, thank you very much for joining me on Biting Talk. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thank you.
Right, it's time for a competition, and this week it's courtesy of our friends at Guillain, uh, the fabulous Belgian chocolatiers. You could win, now listen to this, a selection of Guillain's finest chocolate includes a big box of Guillain seashells, a very big box of Guillain seahorses, as well as one of each of the range of five Guillain chocolate bars. Creamy mix, salted caramel, premium, dark, 72%. Hazelnut and raspberry, dark, 72%. And quite a lot more. So that's a selection of Belgian Guillain finest chocolate. Uh, to win this, all you have to do is answer this question. Which small marine fish is famously associated with Guillain Belgian chocolate? I'll say that once more. Which small marine fish is famously associated with Guillain Belgian chocolate? If you know the answer, DM me, William Sitwell, on Instagram. I look forward to revealing the winner and celebrating the fact that they are going to be living in chocolate on the next edition of Biting Talk. Welcome, everybody. You're listening to Biting Talk with me, William Sitwell, and my guest today, one of my guests, is the Guardian restaurant critic, Grace Dent, and the author of what I would genuinely say is a fabulous memoir slash autobiography. I don't know if we can call it the latter quite yet because she's still still a relative youngster. Although having read this, I feel old because she's made my 70s past history. Um, but Grace, one of the things I've loved about this book, and aside from the specific detail, is as someone who enjoys your writing and reads your restaurant reviews and your your, art, your the odd article you do and like so many of us restaurant critics, you're confined to you know 850 words or whatever it is. It's a real pleasure to for me to see your see you set free to spread your wings and to write. And I have to say, you do write beautifully, and you write in a self-deprecating way that isn't obvious. You write it with good structure. Your spelling's marvelous. <laughs> I think my um, I think my spelling is 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 a hell of a lot better than it is in the Guardian because uh, my, I mean my, my spelling is a law unto itself and uh, Bob Granley's that looks after me. That's why you look so ashen faced all the time. <laughs> oh, you know, you're you're the, you're the one to blame. <laughs> well, I think but, that he um, adds a lot to it. I think that you know when he comes when he gets my work, he adds the uh, you know the grammar basically. <laughs> <laughs> don't ruin it. Don't ruin it, Grace. I don't believe a word of it. Um, oh. Did you enjoy writing this? Because, you know, writing is a slog. When you sit down, you're, you've got to write a memoir. It is a slog. But did you enjoy um, the the capacity, the opportunity to write the sen- sentences as long as you wish, to mm. write a, a, a book about yourself to length? Was this a cathartic, cathartic? Was this a cathartic process? Um, or mm. would it, was it torturous? Because there's a lot of personal stuff in there and we'll talk about, you know, your journey, your struggles and your your dad and so on. But um, what was it like actually putting pen to paper? Did this, was this, was this a, a slog or was it a, was it a breeze? I think, uh, like many authors, the part that I enjoyed the most about writing the book was when they when their eyes light up in a meeting and uh, the publishers and they make you an offer and then they name the money that's involved and you mentally begin spending it on lovely things from heels, uh, <laughs> pieces of furniture you can move into your house. And I, I, I mean, you know, that's almost no joke. I love the process of selling a book. I love the feeling that I've been trusted to write this, you know, because I write this huge, this huge uh, you know, creative endeavor. And then 
And then I would say from that moment, I am always followed around by that kind of Sunday night at secondary school feeling when you haven't done your homework. And it never quite goes. I, it hangs over me the whole time. I do, I do love writing once I've sat down and it's going and I'm past the first, you know, the first few paragraphs. And then I'm, I'm often filled with this immense gratitude that I, that I can hide in there because I am hiding. I love to hide behind my laptop. I can hide from the world and get into this world that I've created. Uh, but, uh, you know, as this book went on, I, uh, I, I had sore misgivings about even writing it, to be honest. I, I kind of sold the book as uh, a nostalgic look at food and family. And I think I maybe thought I could shy away from a lot of the things that I was hiding from in my own head, you know, the decline of my dad and what that actually looked like and how bad that got. So, yeah, I, I mean, I handed him a draft. The first draft I handed him, uh, my publisher, Katya HarperCollins, she kind of gave it back and said, you know, the first half of this is really detailed and then the second has no people in it because I'd kind of pulled back so much from uh, from discussing the whys and wherefores of everything. So do it, you know, was it cathartic? No. <laughs> you know, I would love, you know, maybe by the time when the book festivals come back and, you know, you get to go and stand in a yurt with Alan Bennett and sit on a stage and, you know, talk wistfully about your book. Maybe by that point I'll have fashioned a story where it's cathartic, but... Right, right now, no, right, right now, I feel as if I, uh, I wrote this book that everybody seems, everybody seems to love about Butterscotch Angel Delight and Finder's Crispy Pancakes and Frazzles and how to become a restaurant critic and dementia and people love it and it's lovely, but I am very much now, uh, still kind of living the things that I've raked up. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's interesting because, you you know, you, you list those things that you say it's about. And obviously that was part of the pitch. But in a way, what appeals to me is it's more than that. It's the journey and it's the sort of it's the ambition. And it's this young girl living in Harold Street and cooking sketty, you know, which we discover is spaghetti with your dad. And then the, the dreams of this young girl and the dreams that are sort of forced forward by reading um, however, wonderful or not, Piers Morgan's bizarre column where you see him with these various characters in the Grouch Show, and that there is this, there's this wonderful moment in the book where you come to London. You've, you know, you had entered a competition <clears throat> to meet Marza, Marcel Dargy Smith, the great editor of Cosmopolitan, and finally you end up. And there's this wonderful scene where you are you have imagined for days, probably years, in fact, that you're going to be you're going to be sitting with her at the Grouch Show, and you turn up and. There's a whole, there's 30 other women and they're all much more sophisticated than you. They've got, they know how to converse and you never even have eye contact with the great Marcel Dargy Smith. And then it's back on the train, back up to Carlisle. Well, it, and to be honest, it's, it was back via the BHS cafe on Oxford Street where I had a full English breakfast because they'd made me this really papery um, leg of lamb with all of its kind of, no, um, rack of lamb that there was no meat on it. And I couldn't eat it, and the, all the all the uh, the kind of weird. Uh, it wasn't a marinade; it was something that was on it, but it was getting stuck in my teeth. So it was a, it was a, it was a sad day. Yeah, back on the train, back up north. And you you're still doing that. I mean, the book starts as well 
because you know you talk about your father's dementia and you're actually on the train and he you know he's he can't really quite work at where he lives there is i have to say without spoiling it for everybody well maybe i am um the great ambition is the, in the book is of course to become become you in a way in this writer that we all know now so well and this wonderful thing where your father um at the end of the book, I mean, he, you know, he places a cup of coffee onto your face. <laughs> this is your great moment of pride. And actually, I suppose it's a wonderful thing about dementia is he, you know, the most important thing is that he can connect with you, not the fact that you've been on the front page of your newspaper. Yeah, I mean, he he, he never really uh, understood, even at the best of times, he, he didn't understand what I did for a living. He, as I started to you know, kind of rise through the ranks of magazines and newspapers and be on television. I don't think he, I mean, like many parents, I don't think he ever really saw it as a proper job because it wasn't a place I went to every day. So it was little bits and pieces. He didn't understand that I could make as much money from sitting on a chair for half an hour remembering the 80s on a show that would go out on, you know, some satellite channel than he would have made in a full week working at, you know, an ammunition factory. So he was always very bothered. I mean, I, he's, he was just always bothered I didn't have any money, you know. He was, he was always kind of trying to, you know, even, at the, even in the crazy 90s when everybody was having money, he just thrown it all over the place out of their ears at every media opportunity. He was still trying to slip me a fiver, you know, to try and survive. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, God, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard thinking about my dad. He didn't... Um, he didn't really ever understand what I did. And yeah, well, like the Christmas that he came from his care home, um, I was on the front of the Guardian dressed as a Christmas pudding, but it made no impact. It made no <laughs> yes. impact. Thank, thankfully. <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> how, yeah. how do you feel now that, you know, in a way you're not far from those people who, you know, w w you know, w were arm in arm with, with Piers Morgan. I mean, you know, you do hang out in Soho. You've almost become the person that you dreamed about meeting um, do you feel that your Carlisle roots, the roots of 21 Harold Street, have been left behind or is Grace Dent still firmly rooted in the north? Or are you, are you sort of, do you feel stretched? Do you, do you feel, is there a sense of internal betrayal even between, you know, the, the young Grace um, and with your mam and your dad and, 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 you know, and the voices that you describe so beautifully in the book and the person today who is, I suppose, an example of British meritocracy? You know, you're, you're a columnist. People don't necessarily worry about where you came from. How do you feel about that? Do you ever feel conflicted? Well, I, I mean, I've, I've been trying to leave behind the grace of Harold Street since Harold Street. I was determined. I was determined that I was going to completely leave that behind and uh, and, and almost slip into fine society, and nobody would ever know. Uh, and, you know, come on, you know me. It's like, I, it's, the, it's 40 years later and I only have to open my mouth and people know that me and you are different, William. <laughs> it's like, there's only, and I mean that in the loveliest way, you know, that's why I love hanging out with you. You know, we are literally two completely different animals <laughs> talking to each other. Uh, I don't think he can ever really leave behind what you can so look okay I'll take that back some people do some people get off the train the first time they get off the train they walk up Euston and they change their accent and they slip in and they completely pretend that they don't remember anything about their working clusters I've always had a pretty good relationship with my family and uh, they've 
they they've never they've they've never let me forget because they completely resolutely refuse to treat me as a superstar I think I am in my own head right <laughs> like you know and I write about this in the book I'm kind of turn up in Carlisle and I've had this big check from I don't know some book I wrote in the 90s or something and I've, I've spent it on this Max Mara coat and I'm standing there thinking I just look absolutely fantastic and first of all they always uh forget to pick me up from the station every single time someone just forgets and then someone kind of comes around the things my brother turns up in a in a van with potatoes on the front seat and just says like why are you dressed like a like a womble and that is so you kind of can't I don't think I've ever I don't think I, and you know the point I make in the book is that if you were one of the the young uh, Generation X people who took advantage of the meritocracy, you ran away from the North or wherever it was and you uh, you really made the... But you got this fantastic job, you travelled, you maybe went to America or Australia or whatever. If you love your parents, that is coming down the track at you. You are going... At some point, you're going to speak to your mum or your dad and they're going to not sound great. And that's when you have to make a choice. Are you going to do it from afar or like I did? Do you have to start thinking of ways that you can live there? Um, which I did. I, you know, I, I, for, you know, I'm, I'm in a funny position right now because I kind of can't be there because my mother's shielding. So anyway, that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Now, one, one use of this book, I might say, is it's a, it could answer, it's a question that I get asked. I'm sure it's a question you get asked, which is how do you become a restaurant critic? And this book is really that answer, which probably put a lot of people off because this is a journey, really, of a young girl who becomes a young woman who who comes to know herself, who then bangs on various doors, gets a job finally on The Guardian, you know, has a gets gets a has a, a break on the evening standard. Um then becomes a restaurant critic and goes on telly, does MasterChef, gets recognised in the shops and so on. I mean, this is really a kind of, you know, if someone said to you, how do you become a restaurant critic? You can say, here's my book, this will tell you how. And they'd think, oh my goodness me, that sounds like an impossible task. Um, if someone is asked, does ask you that question, what is your simple answer? How do you become a restaurant critic, Grace Dent? Uh, my simple answer is that you need to be uh, a proven, reliable entertaining writer first who has proven that they can keep on kind of churning out copy that will make people come back again and again it's almost like you've got your little soapbox and you stand on it each week at the same place you know what it's like and you just have to be entertaining I think that uh and I I I think that I mean I loved restaurants I definitely I I, I as I say in the book, I ate, around, ate out around London for 25 years. I wanted desperately to be uh, that person who... I wanted to write down the thing that I would have said in the office on a Monday morning anyway, when someone said, what was that place like? And then I just began and began my little rant about what it was like. I think that to do that, um, Nash, to do that uh, as a job, you, you just really need to convince the right person to give you a go. Nobody's ever going to say, this job is available forever. Would you like to apply for it officially? What I find is with restaurant critic jobs is that you're kind of in the vicinity anyway, doing something else and uh, making a bit of a name for yourself. And then, uh, and then somebody dies or goes sick. 
<laughs> yeah, so you've got to get you've got to get in that. You've in that got vicinity. to get in at that. But then I always say this that it's actually quite uh, a difficult job to keep hold of. Not because they're going to fire you, but because I mean, which they might. But the it's the it's keeping it, it's a bit of a slog, and it's also a job that. Obviously, you can never complain about it. The minute you say it's a slog, the minute you say there's anything at all wrong with this job, people just roll their eyes as if you're complaining about being Princess Margaret or a lottery winner. And it, but it, once you are in, and you you have to be able to do fifty two columns a year plus Christmas plus holidays plus the whims of the editor when they decide to put you in a Christmas pudding outfit. You have to be able to keep on. Uh, churning out these words that make people go, oh God, you know, what's Grace been up to this week? What's William, what's William been up to? They might even say, what's William been up to? I can't stand him. What's Grace been up to? I've never liked her, but I almost want to go and look what she's been doing. I find it really, uh, in, it, to, to be a restaurant critic, you need to be able to sit down, look at a, a blank piece of paper and a blank sheet and, and bring 850 words out of nowhere about eating pasta in in a room that you didn't even enjoy and you hardly remember being there. So it's, uh, and also at the same time, know that almost everybody hates you. People. <laughs> Listen, that's, this is such a useful answer because I shall store and treasure and steal some of this wisdom. Now, listen, um, here you are. You're, you're not just in the vicinity, you're there. You're a restaurant critic. You're surveying the food scene. Um, right now, you know, we're, we're talking during lockdown. We're looking forward to Christmas. Um, how, are your, how are you feeling? Have you got positive vibes about the British food industry? Are you depressed about it? Um, it's genuinely, Ooh. how are you feeling at the moment? I uh, Have I got positive vibes? I have, I have positive vibes when I see the standard uh, of the amazing restaurants at home kits that are coming out. I know these aren't the answers to everything. However, I've just written a piece about this for uh, Saturday's Guardian about uh, we, I just did the, say the, the meat liquor hot dogs at home and uh, Gary Usher's Elite Bistros, we did one of those. And I've been looking at a lot of those. I think that these, these, these kind of things are, are sparks of, are sparks of joy. You know, the sparks of positivity. If I'm doom and gloom, I'm terrified about what's going to happen to the state of the high street, what's going to happen to all these wonderful complexes that we've seen burst open over the last six, you know, six months, two years, three years. These these wonderful kind of shopping malls with amazing restaurants. What's going to happen when all that goes? Don't know. Um, coming up to Christmas, I think that one of my the thing that worries me most is the level of depression that's going to set in across the nation when people really realise that that kind of, that lovely, uh, you know, run up to Christmas that we all we all like, you know, going out, maybe booking in a little last minute drink with people, little last minute lunch, tottering about the office party, things that people love. It's not, it's not there. And, when, and, and, and by turn, we're not putting them, that money into the industry. So, yeah. The the thing that my main concern right now is just personally and for everyone else is just staying sane right through and until February. I think February is going to be the kicker. 
Yes. Well, I, I like that. I mean, the government says stay safe. Grace Dent says stay sane. Stay I think sane. that's very good. <laughs> Listen, we must end it there. A Memoir of Wanting More by Grace Dent. It's out now. HarperCollins, £16.99. Grace, it's been an absolute joy to have you on Biting Talk. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, from reminiscing with the wonderful Grace Dent about the past and thinking about the food that she forced herself to eat in the 1970s and turning that period of our own childhoods, well, those of us who were around at the time, into recent history and making it historic. There's a feeling of melancholy about it and there's a feeling of melancholy to my final guest, the mixologist Farhad Haydari's weekly, weekly cocktail because it's called Fallen Leaves. Farhad, you're going to kind of sink me into a quagmire of gloom. Or is this going to perk my spirits up? Well, the falling the falling leaves, William, as you know, drift by my window. The falling leaves of red and gold. The famous, beautiful lyrics by Johnny Mercer. And that's our cocktail tonight. The fallen leaves, William. As ever, um, relying on the great hero in your life, Frank Sinatra. Um, before we mention that, I think is there a, there's a spot of cognac, I think, in your drink tonight. And I hope you were listening to... The great Jack Charlton from Remy Martin talking about the versatility of that drink and also how it's quite a nifty little uh, drink to go with um, cheese. And I like the idea of that. I like the idea of Christmas Day. Sometimes, you know, maybe cast aside the port or just have it as an option and try some Remy Martin. Quite a punchy number set against um, even a piece of hard cheddar if you haven't got some Stilton to hand. Or, or, or whether it's Brie or Reblochon or Saint-Marcelin, you know, cognac goes, and, and the different expressions of cognac, whether it's an XO or a VSOP or, you know, so, so, something even more, uh, you know, elusive, they all go wonderfully well with cheese. Okay, great. As do you, Farhad. So, well, Farhad, the floor is yours. Ford and leaves. Take us through exactly what this week's cocktail is, please. Well, it has all the hallmarks of the season. It's an autumnal cocktail, William. It's simple, it's easy, and in a word, it's brilliant. It starts with 45 milliliters of Calvados. That goes into our lead glass stirrer, already filled with ice. And that ice is derived from filtered or spring water, Mr. Sitwell. We're going to add another 45 milliliters of Martini Rosa Sweet Vermouth followed by another 15 mils of Martini Extra Dry Vermouth. We add then the aforementioned cognac from our dear, good, and unimpeachable friends as Remy Martin, and then we stir. And we stir well. And then we fine strain that into a coupe and garnish with a lemon twist. The vermouth and the brandy are in harmony with each other, and the colors of the drink, William, all chestnut and burnt umber make the fallen leaves the perfect fall drink. And that's our two-minute biting talk cocktail, Mr. Sitwell. (laughs) (laughs) Farhad, you're an absolute legend. Thank you for being on Biting Talk. Thank you very much indeed, William. We can pair that posting or that story to Johnny Mercer's evocative tone as well. Thank you, Farhad. God bless the house of Adari and all who dwell in the smeggy undercarriage of her bellicose ship of boozy gloriousness. My thanks also this week to James Gunner, Steve Drake, Jack Charlton and Grace Dent. If Farhad's cocktail is too much for your delicate constitution, try a bottle of Terrain Sauvignon Blanc, a dreamy white for just £13.50, available at williamshousewines.com. 
Fighting Talk comes to you with Life Kitchens, whose Waterloo showroom is a treasure trove of creativity under those railway arches in London. During lockdown, what could be better than dreaming of kitchens? So follow them on Instagram for inspiration or enjoy a virtual tour at life-kitchens.co.uk. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Please do subscribe, rate us and eat up your greens sated in the knowledge that Biting Talk is a front ear production. I'm William Sitwell. Goodbye.